but to turn to Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 14, it's page 656 in your blue Bible there. It's one of the uh, interesting aspects of preaching. If you have any integrity, you're always dealing with the text that you're preaching through, and sometimes the text has to deal with you, and especially when you printed out the worship guides three weeks in advance, there's always a possibility of change, and there's change today. So we're going to actually read verses uh, Jeremiah 29, 1-14. We've read this before, and I think you'll understand when we get to the New Testament passage in a moment. So in the first... And the first three verses are who the letter is sent by, whom uh, Jeremiah is to write this letter and send it by, all the surviving elders of the exiles and so forth. And so beginning in verse 4 is the letter that Jeremiah sends to those in exile. Verse 4. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners, the talking heads of the day, if you will, who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares Yahweh. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares Yahweh, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares Yahweh, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And now we can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, which is page um, 1015, 1 Peter 2. We're just going to do the two verses, verses 11 and 12. We'll pick this back up later in January. We're just moving along in our series, for those of you visiting, a series through First and Second Peter, Memories, Manners, and Mandates for God's Minority People. So we're just picking up right where we left off, 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All that I've read to you from the Old Testament and the New Testament is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Stir up your power, O Lord. And with great might do come among us. And as we are sorely hindered and hounded by our own sins, but also hindered and hounded by the sins of others, hindered and hounded, kept from running the race that is set before us very often, 
We beg you, let your bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be all honor and glory, now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. So there are no notes in the, on the back of the worship guide, just lots of blank space that's dying for you to write notes. Okay, or write down your own notes there in the back of the worship guide. So when Chona, that was her name, Chona, a teenage Papagua Indian woman, uh, woman of, a, of a tribe in southern Arizona, was pregnant with her first child, she was unsure what to expect during the time of birth because the women of the tribe didn't talk much about the birthing details. There were two things I noticed as I was just reading through this in a book of uh, history of uh, Native American women is that number one, they often did not pass on what happens at birth. And secondly, many of the tribes, and secondly, a woman was not to cry out in labor. She was actually to be very, very quiet or other things, but she was not allowed to cry out. Some of the tribes were that way. And so, Jonah is part of one of those tribes. She had no idea what was coming, really, in reference to the birth. And so she recounted how when she was stooping down, she's large with child, as we used to say, and so she was stooping down to pass through the low door of her grass hut, and she felt a quick and sudden pain. And at that moment, she laughingly alerted her husband's aunt that she was headed to the little house. The little house was that separate lodge where the women had to go to give birth. Because of her laughter, no one was sure what in the world was happening. Well, she had to go down into a wash, a gully, and run up the other side to get to the little house. And so she takes off running as much as a woman can run who's large the child. And she came to the bottom of the gully, and the baby arrived, just came out with suddenness and surprise right there. And those of you women who had hard childbirths, I'm sure you're envious at this moment. But just boom, there was the baby. Her aunt saw her, came and snipped the cord, tied it, and got her to the little house. Not long after, her sister-in-law came to the little house and asked her why she hadn't told anyone of her pains. Because, you know, they'd been hearing her laughing and they had no idea what was going on. And so Chona answered, well, it wasn't my mouth that hurt, it was my middle. I don't know, that struck my funny bone. But my friends, in so many ways, Chona's experience not only showed her mettle, but it is a picture of Advent in many ways, with the laughter even in the face of the pain. So dear friends, as we move through these two verses in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter explains that we're cleaned up sojourners who exhibit straightforward conduct. Verse 11, cleaned up sojourners who exhibit, verse 12, straightforward conduct. There's the two points. So let's look at verse 11, cleaned up sojourners. After all that Peter has written up to this point, he is now turning in earnest to focus upon the manners and mandates for God's minority people in a very focused and specific manner. But you must keep in mind that as Peter gets more and more into the manners and mandates for us, that all of the manners and mandates are based upon and growing out of what God has done for us. 
We get this all messed up all the time, and we need to get it right that everything he's about to say about the manners and mandates is growing out of everything he has said about what God has done for us. So allow me to get a running head start before we jump off into the sand pit in our long jump. Go back to the verses we looked at last week in verses 4 through 8, or 4 through 10, excuse me. There we are, drawn, being drawn near to a living stone where a rock that doesn't roll, where priests that are pleasing, sacrifices that are savory because God has made us that way. But some people aren't. And so the end of verse 8, those people who are not, they have stumbled because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And then comes verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you did not know mercy, but now you know mercy. Beloved, I urge you. Do you hear how it flows? Right? Verse 11 comes right out of verse 9 and 10 and all the other things that has been said. You've got to keep that in mind. And so Peter now presents us then with verse 11 and 12. He presents us with the course. For you cross-country runners, you'll appreciate that language. The course we're to run that God's great mercy is leading us down. And first, we are back to the crucial reminder that we are God's minority people. Notice how it begins. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now the background music that's playing here, you know how background music works, right? you got background music and elevators that's trying to help you keep from being claustrophobic and panicking and doing crazy things in an elevator. You have background music when you go to the, to the uh, container store, probably, so that way you're very calm and you don't shoplift or beat somebody up. I mean, the background music is important. The background music here, throughout this whole passage, throughout all of 1 Peter, is Jeremiah 29. Exiles who continue to live and love and have marriages and have babies and who work for the shalom of the city where they are exiled and in its shalom they will find their shalom. That's the background music. And he's right back at it, beloved, as sojourners and exiles. We need to remember that. And as we get into this verse, I want you to notice that these, we are the deeply loved sojourners. We think of exiles, we think of people who are rejected, but notice here we're the deeply loved sojourners, the deeply loved minority people, the deeply loved immigrants and expats. Notice the very first word of verse 11. It's a B word. I see Mike's mouth in the word. That's right, beloved. Beloved. Deeply loved ones. Beloved. Now, Peter loves these people, no doubt. But this word is here because God's own love has been sketched out and painted out since chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 10. Because of chapter 1, 1 through 2, 10, Peter can say, Beloved, you're the deeply loved exiles. Deeply loved by God. That's the point. We really are 
the cherished children of God. Additionally, as elect exiles and sojourners, as strangers in a strange land, we then have a different set of moral codes, taboos, habits, uh, interactions, and approaches that we take in our prevailing social milieu. Notice how he puts it. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. Notice the different, tab, different habits and interactions. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. Remember, my friends, in First Peter especially, that these passions of the flesh are the standard we used to live by. They're the standard that the majority culture still lives by. Just take your eyeballs and glance back up to verse chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And notice how Peter puts it there in chapter 1, 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. These passions of the flesh are often passed on to us by, from our families, from moms and dads and uncles and aunts and grandparents and great-grands and so forth. Again, chapter 1, verse 18, you've been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. How did we inherit them? Because those futile ways were often where our families embodied the various ways of living lives dominated and overpowered by these passions of the flesh. Whether it's, it was sexual immorality or drunkenness and chemical addictions or lying and cheating and a stealing or self-righteousness or self-centeredness or abusiveness, and the list is unending. Those are the passions of the flesh. They're in the drinking water and in the air that we breathe. And it was the standard we used to live by. And these passions of the flesh include, at the least, chapter 2, verse 1. They include, at the least, chapter 2, verse 1, all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy, and all slander. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, why is Peter telling us? Why is he not just telling us? He's actually urging us. That's a pretty strong word. Urging us to abstain from these passions of the flesh. One reason is, I'm going to put it in a positive way, one reason because it's just plain good for you. Notice how he ends verse 11. What do these passions of the flesh do? Notice the violent, bloody, gory language he uses. They wage war against your soul. These passions of the flesh set booby traps that pop up and land in the middle of your body and explode and rip you apart. These passions of the flesh rip through your body as they, riv- as they riddle you. These passions of the flesh conquer you, beat you down, and beat you up. They wage war against your soul. So why do you abstain from them? Because it's just good for you. You get how Peter's put it there? Yes, it's just good for you. 
These passions, these desires are trying always to get the upper hand in your life. Trying to always dominate you. Trying to make your life subservient to them. And that's part of James's description clear over in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted. When he is lured and enticed by his own desire, the desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown brings forth death. These passions of the flesh are when desire becomes a sinister tyrant a dominating oppressor, or a sensual seductress. I love the words of Ed Welch in this regard in his book, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. And I highly recommend this. And those of you who have been attending Sunday evenings as we were working through sanctification have heard this quote before. It is a good book if you're dealing with addictions or not dealing with addictions. Either way, you ought to get the book, Ed Welch, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. And he says this, quote, any earthly desire that doesn't take no for an answer is a lust that surpasses your desire for Jesus himself, end of quotation. Any desire that doesn't take no for an answer is a lust that surpasses your desire for Jesus himself. That's a passion of the flesh that is trying to tear you apart and bring you down. This is why Peter says the passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. Why we must, as God's minority people, made his minority people by his great mercy, we must abstain from them. Because he has caused us, remember chapter 1, because he has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, giving us a living hope and a lively inheritance. Because God did that, we're sojourners and exiles, God's minority people. But, Peter says here, we're not just any kind of sojourners, we're cleaned up sojourners. And then, we're directed to have straightforward conduct. Verse 12, verse 12, straightforward conduct. Here, Peter does goes on in a more positive direction in the way he says it. So it was abstain from, that's keep away from, and now it's more positive. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. I want you to notice the connection, the play going on between verse 11 and verse 12. Verse 11 is the put away kind of language, abstain that put off language of scripture and verse 12 keep your conduct honorable is the put on language of sacred scripture put off these things put on these things that's exactly what paul says in many places but for example if you're writing notes colossians 3 verses 5 through 13 and ephesians 4 22 through 25 where he says put off the old way put off the old way of being human, put on the new way of being human that's being transformed after the image of God. It's that put off, put on. Verse 11, put off, abstain from these sexual, these passions of the flesh. And then what do you put on? Keep your conduct honorable amongst the Gentiles. My friends, we cannot simply, we've got to get to this point. We just cannot simply cease doing things, especially practices that have become deep-rooted habits in our lives that are 
maybe harming us and killing us. We need also to not only stop those sayings, but also to put in their place positive actions. For you guitar players, you'll appreciate this. When I was in high school, more high school did this one year. This is back in the 70s, so this is before some of your time. But they actually taught guitar for one of our music classes. And so I went and took guitar class for a year. I can't play a little bit of guitar, by the way. Don't ask me. But I remember the, the instructor saying, no, no, Mike, that's not how you do a D minor. You're doing the D minor wrong. This is how you do the D minor right. You hear it? The put off, put on. So don't do that. Now do this as you do a D minor or whatever chords you want to put in there. I still don't know how to do a D minor, but that's beside the point. But it's that same kind of concept. You put off and you put on. We've got to learn to get this. Listen, I... I smoked for years. That may surprise two of you. But I smoked starting at 16. I grew up in a home of smokers. A long history of smokers thinking of the futile ways inherited from our forebears. So I grew up smoking. Smoking, smoking, smoked like a chimney. In fact, it was breakfast most times with my cigarette and an orange crush. But it was easy to quit. I did it 150 times. And the reason why I was able to quit so easy, because I just quit doing it. But guess what? There was nothing in its place to bring me back out of that, to give me a new way of being. That came when I was 33. It wasn't that long ago. 33, finally, was able to put that off and put on a different set of approaches and habits. It's the same biblical principle. That's the point here. Now notice there's a purpose then for this a reason for this positive direction. Keep your conduct honorable. Just like there was a purpose, a reason for abstaining. Abstain from the passion of the flesh because it's just good for you. And then verse 12, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Now let me just say this as a side note. The Gentiles here are not what you normally think of, the goyim, as our Jewish friends would say. Jews and Gentiles who are united to God's Israel, Jesus, the Son, the offspring of Abraham, by whom the blessing of God comes to all the families of the earth. They are God's Israel. The non-believers are the Goyims, the Gentiles, the majority culture. Keep your conduct honorable in the, in the majority culture is what Peter is saying here. The reason for keeping our conduct honorable among the majority culture is so that, look at verse 12, that when, when they speak evil against you as evildoers, or speak as you, against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, first off, my friends, we just need to settle something in our minds and in our hearts. The prevailing culture will speak against us as evildoers at times. Notice Peter doesn't say if they do. He says when they do. In fact, he will go on to unpack this more fully when you get to chapter 4. He's going to stay on this because this is an important point. We need to get this in our heads. I hope you're listening to me because I am utterly shocked at how many times Christians are shocked when they're on the outs of the prevailing society. I'm just stunned. I'm also stunned when Christians are surprised when they have trouble. I mean, it's like, what did you expect? Where did you get that from, that you were going to have the pain-free life? 
It's nowhere in the Bible. And it's the same thing here. When they speak against you as evildoers, we just need to get that settled in our head. It's going to happen at times. And you could do, you could do all the right things. And it's going to happen at times. Secondly, to the end that we want, we want the majority culture to come to glorify God when Jesus returns. Whether it is by the majority culture's conversion or by them finally bringing about an open admission that we were not evildoers after all, notice what Peter says, that we are to conduct ourselves in ways that the majority culture recognizes as honorable. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. There's a sense in which it's an honorable, an honorable way of being that even the majority culture has to say, I don't like these people. I really don't like them. But you know what? They did the right thing. All right, makes me mad. Whatever, right? It's a, a, in a way that the majority culture does end up seeing it's honorable. Now, someone will inevitably say, Michael, Mike, where did you get that from? Where is that in the Bible besides here? And I'm not sure you've convinced me here. Well, I'm glad you asked. I want to convince you. So let me give you two examples out of several where it is specifically stated. The first one is one of the passages, one of the verses we read before the confession of sin in Romans 12. In Romans 12 and verse 17, notice what Paul says. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And dealing with our being mistreated by others, whether it's our spouses or our employers or our neighbors or our government officials or whoever. We don't, Paul says, we are not, Paul says, to repay, to respond in kind. Our evil for their evil by Geminis. We're not to go that route. Instead, Paul says, we give thought, put our brain powers and brain cells into what the majority culture around us will see as honorable, and we pursue that course. Well, here's another example. In 2 Corinthians 8, and verse 21, that was, by the way, that first one is Romans 12, 17, if you're writing notes. This one is 2 Corinthians 8, verse 21. In 2 Corinthians 8, 21, as Paul gathered around him an accountability team, an accountability team as he amassed, amassed monies that were needed to go and help the needy in Jerusalem. He did not, by the way, collect this accountability team himself, go out and get these people the churches, he had the churches send them people, send him people whom they said were accountable, who are, who are honorable, and they sent them. But as he gathered this team around him to keep accountability for these monies, part of his explanation is voiced in chapter 2 Corinthians 8, 21, and listen to these words. So for our aim, for, excuse me, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, that's number one, always. What's honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. 
So there is always in the back of our heads how we respond to things, as Peter is telling us, is that we do this, we live this life, not to go out and pick fights, not to go out and be nasty, mean, and pugnacious. We go out doing what is honorable even in the sight of all people. First off, honorable to the Lord, and then honorable in the sight of the majority culture. And so as strangers in a strange land, as God's minority people, as his sojourners and exiles, we do have a different set of moral codes, taboos, habits, interactions, and approaches that we take in our prevailing social milieu. Actions and habits that are for our good and are honorable for God's glory. Straightforward conduct. Well, let me try to bring this plane in for a landing. First off, my friends, the prevailing society will at times speak evil against us. But we have a way to deal with it. Number one, we abstain from the passions of the flesh, which is good for us, and we're honorable in the way in a way that honors Christ and is recognizable as honorable. And we can do this. And we do desire to be this way. Why? we've been made God's minority people by his great mercy ransomed from our futile ways and our former passions because he is uniting us to the living stone, Jesus the cornerstone. He has made us a rock that doesn't roll, priests that are pleasing, sacrifices that are savory. And he did it all by grace alone and we were entitled to none of it. And by him doing that, we can now be this way. Here's a second. The day of God's visitation looms on the horizon. That's what Peter says in verse 11. That they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of God's visitation looms on the horizon of where we are headed. It's the coming of the Son of God. Who will come to judge the living and the dead. So, my friends, this gives us that odd tension, like Chona, the Pagawa teenage uh, Native American from southern Arizona, began the sermon with. It gives us an odd tension of, in a sense, on one side laughing, and yet on the other side feeling like we've got pain in the middle, contractions. We can do both. We live in that tension. Advent recalls to our mind. That we are not stuck in the moment. I just stole a line from you too, by the way. But we're not stuck in the moment. I don't know about you, but that's great to know. No matter how much the false accusations fly, no matter how much the social pressures prevail, no matter how much the internal tugs of our own hearts and lives towards sinful passions may pull on us. We're not stuck in the moment. Advent shouts it to us. Villainy, violence, and vindictiveness were exposed for the vileness they are when Jesus came the first time. And God's world rescue operation was set loose and is on the move. The divine remedy is, that's found in his son is accessible to all who will come and receive it. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The father loves his son and has given all things into his hands. He who believes in the son has everlasting life, but he that does not obey the son shall not see life. The wrath of God abides on him. The remedy is there. And Advent shouts that to us as well. And so is the final coming of our Lord, the day of God's visitation. When he comes to judge the living and the dead, we know he will address all perversions and vilifications, and he will set all wrong to rights. Let's pray. The Lord our God, we confess to you first that we find ourselves startled when the majority society says, speaks of us as evildoers. Forgive us for being surprised, for not believing your word when it tells us this will happen at times. Forgive us for not always doing things that are honorable, even in the sight of our majority culture. Forgive us, Father, for the times that we have allowed the passions of the flesh to win. We thank you, Lord, that you have ransomed us from the futile ways learned from our forebears. You have rescued us from the passions themselves that we used to live according to. Thank you that of your great mercy you have caused us to be born again to a living hope and a lively inheritance. Lord, may we be that minority people that is like a Christmas carol, singing your praises, rejoicing even when there's pain, rejoicing that this is not all there is. You, your son, is all that there is in the end. If you are coming, he is coming to set all wrong to right. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.